Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're counting down to just nine days to go until those European elections. Some newspapers are pretending there is still an appetite for the various plots being hatched in Westminster and the infighting in the two major parties about when Theresa May should leave number 10, when she should tell us when she is leaving number 10 and just exactly what, if anything, is going to come out of the Brexit talks with Labour in number 10 or indeed outside of it. Sadly, for listeners to this show, that particular ship has sailed, I would say. Uh, we are now all roundly fed up to the back teeth of all the manoeuvring, the positioning and the posturing. Let's not bother anymore, shall we? Let's just get to the elections and see what happens after that. 0344 499 1000. Happily, we're kicking off this morning with a solution to a problem rather than a problem uh, which is not going to give you any kind of solution at all. The National Crime Agency apparently says it needs another £2.7 billion a year to battle organised crime gangs because there are more than twice as many offenders linked to those gangs than there are soldiers in the army. Well, call me old-fashioned and tell me this is a bit obvious, but surely all we need to do is stick the offending gang members in the army. Problem solved. If you've got more members of a gang than you've got a law-abiding citizens in the army and you need more people in the army, then surely this is a no-brainer, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. We'll be talking to Colonel Richard Kemp, a retired British Army officer, to see what he makes of it all. Coming up later on, we're going to find out just who it is uh, that is dropping litter all over our beaches. I'll give you a clue. They drink Coke and eat McDonald's. Plus, we are crossing live to Cannes, where Dan Wood is scouting for celebrities at this year's Cannes Film Festival. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there are lots of reasons to be cheerful. The weather's looking up. It looks as though spring may have finally been passing through into summer. We might actually be able to get shorts out one of these days soon uh, and wander about as if if we do live in a nice hot country, given that climate change is going to make us all overheat in the coming years and the coming weeks, of course, as well. But for some reason, I don't quite know why, uh, the National Crime Agency has been kicking off about gangs lately. They're obviously looking for more money from the government. They've been telling us all uh, that more people are killed by organised crime gangs than are victims of terrorism. More people are killed by organised crime gangs than anything else in the world. More people are now being sucked into these cr- uh, criminal gangs, whether it be in the inner cities of this country or whether it be in the outer lying county lines type scenarios that we hear about all the time. We're now told today that there are more members and offenders in, uh, of criminal gangs than there are soldiers in the army. Now, that doesn't surprise me because the number of soldiers in our army uh, has been depleted over the years. But let's talk to Colonel Richard Kemp because it seemed to me when I read this story this morning that all I thought was, well, if there's loads of criminals and not enough members of the army, why don't we turn the criminals into fine, upstanding members of the army? Is there a problem with that? Colonel Kemp, very good morning to you. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, Is there a flaw in my argument or does it make perfect sense to you? (laughs) 
Um, well, it's it's a good point I think you make, but I mean, there's a couple of problems. One of which is that um, the army doesn't really want criminals serving. It doesn't, you know. Obviously, there are exceptions. There are cases when people who have committed crimes do serve, but I don't think the army would be interested in taking on mass a bunch of uh, of criminal gang members. Mm. So that that's yeah, it's not they're not the kind of people, generally speaking, who the army would want to recruit. I don't think. But obviously there will be exceptions there will probably be some yeah. good guys in among them but the other the other point is that i'm not sure how productive it's going to be these days to to compel people to serve in the armed forces i, I again maybe the kind of people who are gang members they may well be looking for identity they may be looking for a purpose in their life which leads them into some of this sort of activity but to force them to be soldiers may may have the opposite effect, perhaps. You think it might backfire? Well, the thing is, we hear all the time, we talk about gangs quite a lot on this show, and we have former gang members, we have former prisoners talking to us, and they are all they all say with one voice what these kids need is something to take them away from the gang, something to give them a sense of purpose, a sense of kind of pride in themselves. Many of them lack a father figure, and perhaps, uh, you know, the military is that place. And I wonder, um, maybe you're right to say that the very hardened members of these criminal gangs are too far gone, but it may well be that there are, you know, youngish kids kids in these gangs who are maybe 15, 16, who would benefit from being like hoisted out of the community they're in, um, where they're going to become perpetual criminals, and, and given a reason to do something else. Yeah, and, and you know, my experience in the army, the people who would otherwise have gone off the, you know, the, the, the beaten track, who, who may well have become criminals, whose, whose family members have become criminals, by joining the army, it sort of saved their skin, because... The army does provide a, a home for people who perhaps, you know, perhaps need more guidance than others. They come from very difficult backgrounds and it, it sets them on the right track. And some of these guys become, and I've known many people from in that sort of situation who become extremely good soldiers and then later extremely good members of society. Mm. So you, your, your point is right. But still, I think, you know, of course, you know, it's open. That those members of gangs who ha- who haven't actually committed the criminal acts, it's open to them to join the army, if they choose to do so. It's not something that's excluded to them. They can they can apply, and if they succeed, they can get through the process. Mm. Perhaps perhaps there should be more encouragement of young people to to join the forces. One of the problems, of course, is that with our schools these days dominated by left wing teachers, in many cases they reject offers by the army to come into mm. the schools and brief their pupils on. Um, on how you know what what options exist yeah. in the army and how to join. So I think you know that's one problem to tackle. And another another sort of related issue to that is let's get more ex-soldiers into schools teaching. And, and there are some that I know who've been very very successful at mm. it teaching uh, and and in, in attempting to impose the kind of discipline that will benefit these kids. But of course, then when you've got a as I say a left-wing dominated. Um, education system which doesn't really like discipline and has rejected discipline i think that's that then becomes difficult as well i think you know in some ways the the education system needs to be quite radically overhauled and we need to return i hate to say we should look back at the good old days we do need to return to days when uh, 
you know, education was accompanied by quite a significant mm. degree of discipline. Yes, no, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, uh, similarly, I do not wish to look back on everything that happened in the past as somehow rose-tinted spectacles like and, and very much sort of, um, you know, nostalgic for the past. However, it doesn't also mean that everything that happened before is a bad thing. And so there's no reason not to embrace some of it uh, while rejecting uh, other parts of it. But, but what I was going to ask you, Colonel Camp, is how the recruitment process works now and, and whether it is, in fact, working in the sense that, you know, we know that there's not as many members of the armed forces as there were. Are, uh, is recruitment keeping up a pace with, with the numbers of jobs that are to be filled? Far from it. Mm. And one of the reasons for that uh, is because the, um, the, the armed forces or the army in particular was forced by budget constraints to outsource recruiting to, to, to get an agency to do it, which was cheaper than doing it in-house. Mm. But of course, getting a civilian agency to, to organise recruiting has been a disaster because it, it may cost less money, but it, it's no point in spending less money on something if it's not effective, mm. which it isn't. So, we, you know, there is a need for more recruits, um, but but that's not something that, in my opinion, that's not something that is due to a lack of people wanting to be soldiers. It's due to the system not really having a, a recruiting organisation that, that works, that, that appeals to the right people. And, you know, I've, I've done sort of something, not, not dissimilar to the sort of thing that we've been discussing this morning, I've, when I was commanding an infantry battalion, we sent our men out onto the streets of, of our local towns and villages, and we spoke to people, young people, who you know, maybe looked as if they needed something they weren't, they probably weren't in employment, etc. We spoke to them and suggested they join, and we got many recruits like mm. that. So that's something, again, that could apply to some of your your gang members. Yes, that's right. And what about Jeremy Hunt, Foreign Secretary, last night was at the Lord Mayor's banquet in London saying basically that the UK should consider decisively increasing defence spending after Brexit. He's not particularly saying that Brexit's going to create us with a problem, but he basically says um, alongside many other people who have said this that it's not sustainable to expect the United States to spend 4% of its GDP on defence while other NATO allies spend between 1% and 2%. Um, he's going to struggle getting that through to Chancellor's office, isn't he? I think he will, depending on who the Chancellor is post-Brexit. Hopefully not the current one. Uh, well, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but I, no, I, don't, I agree with you. I don't think that Brexit is going to be a, a, a... I don't think Brexit is going to cause us to increase defence spending because Brexit actually is going to be beneficial for our defence if we actually leave the EU. But, <clears throat> but I do think that we need more money spent on defence. You know, the government, not just this government, successive governments have slashed defence spending... Mm continually and consistently pretty much since the end of the Cold War and even during the Cold War um, because they, they've they seen it as an opportunity to, to save money when obviously money does need to be saved, but they've always seen it because there, there aren't actually that many votes in defence. If you slash the National Health Service, you slash you know, school funding, etc., mm. then, of course, that does cost you votes. Slash defence doesn't cost many votes because there are actually very few people really know or care about it. So that that's always been an easy target, but the result is that you then end up when a, with the world getting more and more dangerous. You end up with armed forces that are incapable of coping with it. And I don't think the British armed forces today, despite their quality, despite the determination and, and ability of the, the members of the armed forces, which is extremely high, I, I don't think we really have the ability to respond and react 
to the kind of situation we're very likely to face in the future. Well, that's what I wonder about as well, because I think we're told, certainly Labour say there's something like £10 billion uh, has been lost from the defence budget since about 2010. And I can't imagine, and I don't know whether you can, Colonel, any British force now going into any part of the world uh, with any great sort of confidence of success militarily. Well, it, it depends, obviously, on who we're facing and where it is and and what our other commitments are at the time. But mm. we do have very limited ability to deploy forces. For example, we would not now be able to deploy a task force down to retake the Falklands if we needed to on the scale that we did before, probably mm. not on any scale. Mm. But then on the other hand, you know, you look at it and, and the, the, the armed forces we've got currently deployed in the Falklands are sufficient to make sure that we don't need to do that again. I think, I think those forces we've got smaller they are, uh, would prevent a recurrence of that. I'm not saying that Argentina is likely to try that again, but 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 the point. My point is that we would not be able to launch a task force like that mm. again. Now, well, certainly, I mean, Argentina, say, well, Argentina came quite close to sort of threatening to do it again relatively recently because of the state of their internal domestic politics. Yeah, they they, they yeah, it's possible they might mm. try again. You can't exclude it. We didn't yeah. expect them to try when they did. Right. But and we weren't we weren't sort of planning and preparing for that eventuality. I don't believe in any great depth. But nevertheless, when it happened, we had enough armed forces to deal with it. So something else could happen somewhere in the world that we do need to deploy forces to to deal with. Um, and they're simply, I don't think, there. You know, obviously we would have to nowadays where we didn't in the past. We would have to nowadays work with the United States of America. Mm. I think that would be our only, possibly France. But no, there's no other European uh, nation that has armed forces that are either capable or indeed would have the political backing behind them to, to be effective um, on their own or in conjunction with us in a military operation. It would have to be mm. pretty much the United States of America. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, we hear a lot about uh, President Macron and his ideas of a European army, even though that was all denied at the time of the first referendum that we had in 2016 by, by Nick Clegg and others. So, I mean, the deals that we have, because as far as I'm, un I'm, I'm aware, we still have various naval deals, I think, with the French, don't we? We're supposed to be sharing aircraft carriers and all that sort of thing. What happens to all of that post-Brexit? Well, each one is obviously different, but, but m m we do have a number of bilateral military agreements with the French. Um, and, and as far as I'm aware, those bilateral agreements would remain in place. They, you know, they're, they're, not really, they're not EU arrangements. They're not affected by the EU, um, unless the French decided you know, in, in a state of shock that we'd actually left the EU. They might have decided to withdraw from us, but it wouldn't be a huge loss to us. I mean, mm. These are good arrangements, they're beneficial, but it wouldn't be the end of the world if they didn't continue. Right. But I think Macron and, and others who are so intent on an EU army, if they, the more they carry their plans through, um, you know, the more damaging it's going to be for, for Europe's defence, because they, these, the, a European army is in direct rivalry and competition to NATO. NATO is a very successful alliance. We need to boost and back NATO and invest more money in NATO, yeah. not a, a sort of paper army which the EU army would be, which would be seen by European countries as an opportunity to rationalise defence spending and therefore 
spend less, even less on defence than they do today. Right. And just going back to the recruitment question, so you would favour, would you, a sort of return to old, you know, they used to have the old army recruitment offices in the high street, which we don't see it very much anymore. I don't know if that was take, they were taken away for a particular reason. Um, but, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a general kind of distaste, it seems to me, whenever you would see in the town square or in the, you know, the pedestrianised shopping precinct, some kind of army recruitment place, because it's almost as though people don't want to see that anymore. Well, I think some people don't, and, and those are probably the same sort of people that don't want to see soldiers recruiting in schools. Yeah. Um, uh, but but I, I certainly, when I did it, and we're going back a few years now, we're going back um, probably 15 years or so, but you know things haven't maybe changed that much in that time. But we were, we were welcomed by very many in the high streets, and um, people like to see a military presence in many cases. And you know, young people who were lurking around outside McDonald's without a great deal to do, were very, uh, uh, you know, amenable to being approached. And, you know, some young people, 16, 17 years of age, who, or, you know, even older, 18, 19, who had never considered for a moment joining the armed forces, mm. when approached by a smart young soldier in uniform who was telling exactly how it was, um, would go on down to the recruiting office and sign up. And, and you, we saw, we took many young men and women off the streets. Yeah. Um, who would otherwise never have considered it and may well then have gone into all sorts of dodgy lives. But I think that's, you know, it's that, that area. The other area is getting recruiting teams into schools and talk, particularly schools in inner cities where yeah. these problems are probably most ripe, and talking to them about what it means. And also the other, the other um, area I think that we could do with expanding and investing more in is the Army Cadet Force. Yeah. And Army Cadets, um, you know, they're in every town and city in the U.K., some schools have their own army cadet detachments, uh, and they provide a fantastic service, which does give, in some cases, a good meaning and structure, and incentive to young people. And in some cases, they don't all, but in some, you know, some of them end up joining the army as a result of being in the cadets. Yes, no, I think you're absolutely right, Colonel Richard Kemp. Thank you so much indeed for talking to us, uh, Colonel Kemp, retired British Army officer, saying uh, the dearth of recruitment possibilities is what the problem is at the moment for the armed forces in this country because there is this kind of bias whether it's lefty bias whether it's liberal bias whatever you want to call it there are people who find the army and the subjects that the army deal with uh, to be distasteful well you know as they say uh, in uh, all good movies like a few good men uh, you may not want me on that wall but you need me on that wall and you might not like how we do it oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand and in yorkshire has texted in uh, to eight seven triple two she says, my son's a lovely kid. He's only 18 years of age. He works 10-hour shifts in B&Q, earns a good wage for him, but no way enough to leave home or run a car. A lad a couple of doors down he went to school with is the same age, doesn't work, but drives about in a brand-new BMW selling drugs. It really upsets me. No wonder these kids uh, do go off the rails when they see this. And one from Steve, who says, rubbish. The British Army is highly trained. They don't need drug-addled gangbangers. Get the middle classes and the media to stop taking coke. That'll sort them. Well, Steve, if you think it's only the middle classes and the media that are taking cocaine uh, i think you've got another think coming cocaine uh, is a massive problem in this country and it is affecting almost every single part of society that you can imagine it's got nothing to do with class it's got everything to do with illegality and these gangs and for some reason these gangs are being allowed to grow and grow and grow i say put them in the army teach them a lesson i think it's a great idea 0344 499 1000 is the number this is talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio 
Now, I've got a great deal of time for the organisation for whom I'm about to speak, or to whom I'm about to speak, because they do an awful lot of great work around the country. Uh, the charity, uh, which is called Surfers Against Sewage, is submitting the results of a study they've done to the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, basically saying that they require packaging companies to pay the full cost of disposing of litter. I think, however, on this one, Hugo, uh, you've got it slightly wrong. Hugo Taghomes, Chief Executive. Hugo, very, warm, very good morning to you. Good morning, yes, and thanks for having me on, Mike. No, um, not at all. Listen, you know, I've got a great deal of time for what you guys do. Thank you. I think it's a bit unfair, though, to charge the companies themselves with, with littering when it's the ridiculously badly behaved British populace which is doing all this. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe the, the, the British populace as badly behaved in general. Um, we work with over 100,000 community volunteers a year on picking up plastic pollution from our beaches, yeah. on protecting our beaches for everyone. But we're in the middle of these big government consultations on how we stop getting litter onto the beach mm. in the first place. We right. need to create the new systems to recycle and reprocess this litter in the right way. So that's what Serps Against Sewage is doing. We've submitted evidence to the government today, both on stopping bottle pollution and other plastic packaging pollution from getting onto our beaches. Because the companies that make this stuff um, can create the systems to help the public, to help them recycle more, to put incentives on recycling and to make sure that they create less harmful packaging and less of that packaging overall. But I'm assured, assured that, that, that most people who leave... I mean, I go to beaches on a regular basis. I live quite near a beach on the south coast of Sussex, right? I never leave any litter behind. I just don't. And I don't know no. anyone that does. No, and the majority of people actually don't. And, you know, I live close to a beach in Cornwall, Perranport Beach, and, you know, we see all sorts of ways that litter gets onto that beach here. It can get washed up. Um, it can get pulled out of bins by seagulls, all sorts of different ways. Sure, there are litterers. We need to make sure that people stop littering. But companies also need to create the right systems, the right framework for people be, to be able to do the right thing. That's why Surface Against Sewage is calling for, a, for example, a deposit return system on plastic bottles, a yeah. small deposit that you get back when you do the right thing and recycle that bottle. And that means that that bottle can get turned back into a new bottle and never end up on the beach or in the ocean. Yeah. And also, it does provide an incentive. I mean, I've seen it in New York where, you, where they have a deposit on cans, and it might not be something that everybody agrees with, but what you will often see, and you may have been there and seen it, uh, is, is uh, some homeless people pushing a, a, trolley, a shopping trolley full of cans because for them, it's a source of income. They can take it back somewhere, and it doesn't litter the street. Well, absolutely. And I'm of the age where I remember taking um, lemonade bottles back to the shop with my granddad yeah. um, to get the 20p back. And then we got another bottle of lemonade. And mm. that's the way it worked. And that's a proper circular economy that can protect the environment. It's good for people and it's good for the planet. And of course, it protects our ocean and our beaches for everyone. And on a beautiful summer's day like today, that's what I'm sure we can all agree that we need to do. Sure. And is it easy to do something like that, to organise that kind of uh, uh, sort of deposit return system? I thought I did a story some months ago about a couple of supermarkets that were trying out a bottle bank system where you can actually put a bottle into a machine and get money out. Absolutely. Well, that's the reverse vending machine. And, you know, there have been pioneers in, in the sort of uh, supermarket sector. Iceland supermarkets have been great on that front, you know, really championing bottle deposit systems. It takes time to make sure the system works for everyone, for the consumer, for the retailers, for the manufacturers. And that's what the government are consulting on. But they're committed to a deposit return system. And we need to make sure that it works for the whole country. So it will take a, some while to come online, um, a year or two. But once it's there, it will really protect our environment. And that's what we're consulting on this week. That's what we've submitted evidence to. 
and that's what we can all work for um, to protect the environment. Yeah. Now, I'm re- reading the story in the Times this morning. A spokeswoman for Cadbury says this, without robust packaging, the shelf life of many products would be far shorter and could create more food waste, which is 10 times more detrimental to the environment than plastic. What do you make of that? Well, I think there the spokesperson is talking about less bad. And what we need to make sure is that they innovate the new systems to deliver those products that we've all come to love, whether it's a Cadbury's chocolate bar or something else that causes less harm to the environment but still preserves the, uh, the, the, the product inside. We need to make sure that plastic pollution is just not acceptable. It's a real outrage that we walk along our beaches in this day and age and find so much plastic pollution in the tideline, wherever that comes from. And we need to put every effort in there from everyone, from individuals, from companies and from the government to stop that plastic pollution at source. And do you know, for example, how much of the... Because it's interesting what you said about, like, seagulls picking stuff up out of uh, out of dustbins and, and stuff washing up on the shore. Do you know how much of the litter that's it, that is found on our beaches is actually left there by people littering? Well, it's not... It's not it's not the, the majority of it. So we find oh. stuff coming out of landfills. Mm. We find stuff um, coming out from all sorts of different sources. And we need to be, be careful not just to apportion blame to the public. Yeah. Of course, the corporations are making the profits out of producing this stuff. And they need to be responsible for the full life cycle of that product. And really, that packaging, that plastic is a valuable resource. We mustn't let it escape into the environment. We need to keep it to create new packaging or other useful products. And that's a true circular economy that won't damage our environment for the future. Because it's not just about now, it's about the future for our children and their children's children. And certainly Michael Gove, the Environment Minister, seems to be relatively kind of um, willing to listen to to different ideas. And and he's willing to listen to uh, the climate change lobby and all of that. so, I mean, are you, are you dealing with, with him or his department? How, how are you getting on? Absolutely. We've dealt with Michael Gove, and I've met Michael Gove on a number of occasions uh, and his other ministers within DEFRA. Um, you know, he's very open to these suggestions. Um, he seems very progressive, and now is the time. He's got the evidence from the public um, to, to ensure that the, the businesses are doing the right thing, and we hope that he makes the right choices to really put the most progressive recycling systems in, the most progressive circular economy systems, to make sure we trap that plastic in the economy and not on our beaches. And does it surprise you that the brand sort of discoveries that we're making here uh, have put Coca-Cola very firmly at the top of the list of pollution, 15.5%, 20,000 pieces of branded packaging, I think, uh, found by 45,000 volunteers. Also, PepsiCo, high up on the list, and McDonald's as well. I mean, are you able to draw any conclusions, or is that dangerous to do? Well, look, these are, these, are the, the, these, are, these are big, high-street brands. These are multinational companies, um, create a lot of products Um, and of course people are buying those products but that's why we say to those companies create the right systems that can claw back your packaging and recycle it and reprocess it into new new products new packaging that don't harm the environment and also reduce the packaging wherever possible create new systems that can deliver these products in a new way so we have a more sustainable sort of ecosystem to work in no, quite, absolutely right. And what are you hoping will be the sort of timetable for anything like this? Because the packaging conversation is going on in every sort of area, isn't it? Because we're already hearing that we throw too much food away, that so much food that's now sold in supermarkets has got unnecessary uh, and overburdensome packaging. It feels like we're sort of on the cusp of changing something. Well, I think we're in a very exciting time of innovation where we see 
um, companies innovating, where we see the public calling for change, and we see the government realising it needs to put a new legislation to incentivise companies and people to do the right thing. So I'm excited to see what will happen. You know, we've seen you know amazing innovation over the past sort of 30 years in various technologies. Just think of our mobile phones. So let's hope that we can do the same sort of thing with our packaging and make sure that we're not causing harm to our environment. Exactly right. Hugo, thank you very much indeed. Hugo Tagholm there, a chief executive of Surfers Against Sewage, uh, who says, quite rightly, that we've got to do something about all the littering that goes on in this country. He's actually been quite defensive about not blaming members of the public. But there's no doubt in my mind that there are certain people in this country who just don't give a stuff about the environment. I'm not one of them, by the way. Uh, some people think that I don't care about climate change. That's not the case. What I'm saying is, is that let's be more specific about precisely what it is that we can do to stop things from happening, which are anti-diluvian, which are things which we really need to make sure don't happen anymore. Like littering. I mean, if you see somebody throwing something out of a car, if, like me, it turns you into a mad, crazed individual, because it does, I can't stand it when I see that. I'd quite like to go up and hand it back to them or throw it back inside the car. I can't stand people that litter. I don't like seeing people dropping litter on the street. I really don't think it's worthwhile uh, uh, saying to people, please don't litter on the beach, because surely, to God, you wouldn't do it anyway. What sort of an idiot would throw something into the sea? What sort of an idiot would throw something into the river here in London? In the River Thames, you see stuff floating, which must have been thrown in by some completely thoughtless individual. There is something wrong with them, surely. 0344 499 1000. But I really don't think it's really fair to blame Coca-Cola, blaming uh, McDonald's, blaming Pepsi, just because some of their stuff keeps getting found, getting washed up on beaches. It's not right, is it? 0344 499 1000. We've got loads of you who want to talk to us. We will get you all on uh, very, very shortly. This is Talk Radio. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. this week on Julie Hartley Brewer's Breakfast Show she will be interviewing a candidate for the European elections from each of the major political parties running in next Thursday's vote. This morning it was the turn of Lord Andrew Adonis to speak to Julia. She asked him exactly what was the Labour Party's policy on Brexit going into the elections. Well the party policy is what was agreed at the National Executive Committee two weeks ago which is that there will be a referendum on any Tory deal with an option to remain 
but, uh, and let's get all this out there, that we would like there to be a general election. As I say, I don't think in the real world there's going to be a general election because that would involve... Tory MPs being totally you know, or a, or and realistically a, a Tory a, a Labour Tory deal. No one thinks that's going yeah. to happen. Either. No, no in which case, so there isn't so, going to be a general election, and there isn't then going to be a second referendum. Is that not right? Uh, no, no. If there isn't going to be a general election, there isn't going to be uh, a revised uh, deal, which we've said. Then that just leaves a Tory deal. There isn't going to be any other deal, and therefore the policy is uh, by elimination uh, that you end up with a referendum with an option to remain. And I'm completely comfortable with that policy because I think it's in the national interest three years on from the last referendum, now that we can see what the Brexit prospectus is. And that was Lord Andrew Adonis speaking to Julie Hartley Brewer this morning on Talk Radio. He is running to become a member of the European Parliament for South West England and other parties with candidates running in that region in next Thursday's European election include the Brexit Party, Change UK, Conservatives, Green, Liberal, Democrats and, of course, uh, UKIP. Liberal Democrats, that is, rather than Liberal and Democrats. Uh, plus independent candidates who are Larch Maxi, uh, Mothia Rahman and Neville Seed. Now, lots more to do uh, coming up later on in the show. Uh, we'll be talking, of course, um, about all sorts of other things, including uh, why the housing market is now getting flooded uh, with houses for sale rather than uh, houses for rent and uh, apartments for rent because the buy-to-let market has more or less collapsed. But we're going to go back to the phones now because loads of you uh, want to talk about the army story from the first hour and whether or not uh, gang members could be conscripted into the army uh, to make them more useful to society and take them off the streets and stop them committing quite so many crimes. Let's talk to Andy first in Littlehampton. Hello, Andy. Hello, Mike. How Morning. you doing? Morning. Nice to yeah, talk to you. What do you want to say? Yeah, lovely to talk to you. Um, well, as a 22-year veteran, um, what, I would, what I would say is I, I joined the Navy very, very young, mm. uh, just before my 16th birthday. Okay. And uh, I'd been in cadet forces before that. Um, and what I noticed was after I joined the Navy, uh, when I came back literally after about a year or so, that the mates that I've grown up with and the environment where I'd grown up in um, looked different to me. And I kind of had a disconnect, but not a disconnect in a bad way from those mates, but a disconnect in a way that I kind of moved on. Yeah. And it was kind of a, you know, look, I, I could, I, I've got a different perspective than what I would have had if I hadn't joined. And um, what I'm saying is that there are three services out there. We've been talking an awful lot about the Army this morning, but yes. also the RAF and the Navy. They offer trades, they offer mates, which you're going to have for life in, in many cases. Yes. Um, travel, money in your pocket when you're a youngster, um, and a, a, a sense of belonging. Because I think a lot of the gang members, they they kind of, they, they want this sense of belonging. Yes, they do. And and I think that the, that the armed services give you a sense of belonging in a controlled environment, and they also um, give you um, a future. You know, again, something that they don't have in the gang. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think a lot of these kids who are joining up with the gangs are doing so because there literally isn't anything else for them to do. And if they were given an opportunity, like I said, I don't think anyone wants to be in a gang because they don't. They know that they're either going to get killed, they're going to get stabbed, they're going to get arrested, they're going to be put in jail. Nobody wants that, really. Well, no, that's it. I mean, what I would say, um, as a word of caution about conscription now, uh, or national service, uh, better word for it, mm. when the last time we had national service, of course, I think the whole attitude of the populace was different. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there was a much more can-do attitude amongst the general civilian population as well as the um, 
as well as the uh, people that got recruited into the army. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people would sort of pull together a lot more. I think that now that largely has been lost. And I think that um, I, I, I just think it would be a lot more difficult to try and um, re redo what we mm. have did back in the days of yes. national service now with the, the way the space, the country and the people that live in it are. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's a very good point, Andy, but it doesn't mean we can't do it. We just have to think about a different way of doing it, I suspect. Andy Littlehampton uh, makes a very good point. He's right. You know, a sense of belonging is what an awful lot of kids want. They need to have, uh, you know, some belief system. They're not getting it at home. They're not getting it anywhere apart from in some kind of criminal gang, which gives them a sort of brotherhood, if you like. Let's talk to Vernon, uh, who's in Worcester. Hi, Vernon. Michael, good morning. Very good morning, sir. I'm very well indeed. What can I do for you? This packaging situation yeah. is really, really something that, that riles me immensely. I've got a great idea. How about human beings, the proper people, and pick up their rubbish? Yesterday, well, be nice. I went, that would be a good start, wouldn't it? Yeah. Always comes back on the company. As a company owner, we're always trying to reinvigorate ourselves, improve ourselves, but actually... Rubbish is quite simple. It's a social problem. Yeah. I, I went to a coffee shop yesterday morning. God knows how some of these people actually live because if their houses were anything, to, anything like the mess they left in the coffee lounge, yeah. uh, it's staggering. I mean, people, all they have to do is just pick up the rubbish. And then there won't be any rubbish. Yes. It's really simple. I know. It really isn't difficult. And, I mean, I've got a couple of tweets here from people saying, well, one of the problems on beaches is that the councils don't empty litter bins. And that's true. You see that in London all the time as well. Well, what's wrong with taking it home? Exactly. Why don't you just, you know, you got a car, put it in the back of your car, if not, put it in a carrier bag and carry it. I've got, honestly, Mike, at some point in time, this nanny state approach is nonsense. People have to do the decent thing. You know, you're talking about gangs and gang members. Mm. How about being a decent human being? You know, you don't, okay, there may not be loads to do, but you have to go and stab someone. Well, exactly. But I'm just thinking of all the. But I'm just thinking, Vernon, of all the conversations we have with various people who say, well, these kids just haven't got enough to do. Really? I mean, kids have got more to do now than they've ever had. Michael, I've got six children. I'll tell you what, I'll find a job for each and every one of them. Don't you worry. They won't be sitting on the couch at the PlayStation every day. No, you're absolutely right. But also, the idea that somehow they need a youth centre to go to is the biggest load of baloney I've ever heard. I've been hearing that for about 30 years now. Get in the garden, to the garden, clean your dad's car. Yeah. You know, just help out with the washing. Well, a lot of them have to find their dad first before they can find his car. Okay, go and see that your next door neighbour who's maybe an older. Let's take care of people. Let's be nice. Yeah. How about just being nice? Go shopping for your next door neighbour, maybe. Well, just just be a decent human being. And if everybody, I mean, unfortunately for me, my my sort of rules are a bit old-fashioned. Clean your shoes. Go to school in a uniform. Don't be wearing trainers. Don't have a sweatshirt. Oh, you know what I mean? Just be fit for purpose. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. You're absolutely right, Vernon. Thank you very much indeed. David says this, there's a reason why the British Army is the best in the world. Individuals from all backgrounds decide to join. They are not forced. I served with hundreds of great servicemen and women and we all wanted to be there. We all wanted to be the best. Well, that's fine, David, but don't you think that sometimes there are people who don't know 
that it's going to be great, who might need a little, um, shall we say, cajoling to join. And if they are criminals, because they are petty criminals, because they have bought into this ridiculous underground gang culture because they think it's worth something, when in fact we all know that it's worth less, surely that would be a help. And surely guys like yourself who were in the army could then uh, help them. And that would be the way to go. A mid-morning dance with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. WhatsApp, as you were hearing on the news there, you may indeed have been hacked over the course of the last few months. Uh, well, nobody's really sure exactly how they did it uh, or exactly what they did it for, uh, but dozens of WhatsApp users, we're being told, including human rights organisations and a UK-based lawyer, are thought to have been targeted after hackers exploited a major vulnerability in the app in an attempt to take over the operating system. Now, uh, a lot of people use WhatsApp. There's WhatsApp groups for work. There's WhatsApp groups for social activity. Uh, most people who have got a phone number and a mobile phone have got a WhatsApp account. But let's talk to Scott McGrady, cybersecurity expert, to find out from him uh, whether we should be worried about this because there's all sorts of spyware being put on it, people finding out what you're doing, what you're up to. Scott, very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, mate. Now, this is a bit weird, this one, to me, it seems, because it looks as though, uh, in a way, this big uh, hack that's that's been done has been quite targeted against certain individuals and certain groups and is not necessarily one of those kind of what I would call nuisance hacks. It seems to have been done for a particular reason. Is that is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Um, so when you look at it on the face of it, you think, oh, God, WhatsApp's been, you know, it's been compromised yeah. and all our data's flying around. But actually, it's not. When you start to pick it apart, you start to realise that there is a private entity behind this or thought to be behind this mm. whose sole purpose is to collect as many of these vulnerabilities, these hacks, and sell them to law enforcement or maybe even just sell the data to law enforcement. So. Right it starts to suddenly take on a different meaning. You and I might be okay, but political groups or, or journalists or, or, you know, Amnesty International or, you know, charities, they might actually be the targets. And I don't know whether that's more terrifying or less terrifying. Well, I wonder whether that means it's a government-inspired hack of some kind then, or not necessarily a British government, but a government-inspired one. Well, the, the, the company that's supposedly behind it is an Israeli company. They're worth about, supposedly worth about $1 billion because this is what they do day in, day out, mm. and they've been known to be a cyber arms dealer, and quote-unquote, that's really? what the press have been calling them. And you know what? That it, it's not far from the truth. If you think about you know traditional arms dealing, there's no different now. We live totally in a world that's dependent on digital technology. It's dependent totally on the internet it would make logical sense for a company to move into that field and start selling their, their hacks or their tools or their, you know, their spyware to governments to allow them to perform espionage. Right. And this has been going on as recently as this weekend, I understand, right? Yeah, absolutely. What, what's quite worrying for me is WhatsApp have released a fix on Friday. They have released an update, but at no point in that update does it say it's actually fixed anything. Mm. It's, you know, it's been going on for a month. Uh, that much is clear. There's a couple of people that are saying, you know, they're still targeted by it. There's no way to really tell if you've been targeted or not. And WhatsApp aren't releasing much data. Because bear in mind, WhatsApp's owned by Facebook. Yeah. Facebook aren't really revealing much data there's around funny, it. There's but, a funny uh, thing. It's a funny thing, yeah. If you think about the idea that Facebook, you know, not too long ago was in a, embroiled in a, a big... A 
big news story about you know data leaking yeah. and, and privacy concerns and now WhatsApp is being targeted and Facebook aren't particularly happy about mm. it. Well, of, well only, the other, only the other day Mark Zuckerberg was talking about trying to regain trust from people, wasn't he? And saying that, you know, they were going to guard privacy even more, which, of course, some people took to mean uh, would be a bad thing because it would mean that people and groups who were maybe slightly less than uh, decent were going to hide more from the public. But in fact, uh, a few days after that, uh, people's <laughs> privacy has been incredibly breached. But I mean, I, I, I'm told the original story I read on this yesterday, I think it was, suggested that um, people were using the phone app uh, or the phone part of WhatsApp, rather, uh, to sort of gain access to your account. So if you haven't had a phone call from somebody you don't know on WhatsApp, you're probably OK. Ah, uh, you would think that, but uh, there's been reports of them being able to clear the device's call logs. If you think about it, 3 a.m. in the morning, you could receive a call. It will go completely silent because our phones go and do not disturb now, or mine certainly does. Yeah. Um, and the call comes through, they can install the spyware and then remove that call from your call log history. Oy. That's quite worrying. Yeah, that is worrying. Um, so there's been reports of that. Oh, it's blimey. definitely worrying. Very not, it's not good. When someone's able to manipulate uh, basically a, a log or a, a, some, you know, a call log history like that, really, really not good because no. there's no way you can tell whether or not it's be, you've been targeted. No, quite. And what are they after? I mean, if it is some kind of um, sort of anti-human rights organisation, they're not going to get much out of my phone. <laughs> well, that's the question. A lot of these companies, certainly the cyber arms dealers, are, you know, they, they collect these hacks and, and tools and try and sell them to governments and law enforcement on a, a legal basis to try and, uh, let me clarify that there, on a legal basis yeah. to try and give these governments uh, extra tools, extra bits of kit in their you know, James Bond arsenal, effectively, mm. so that they can go after, quote-unquote, the bad guys, because right. it's always a, there's always a point of contention there. You know, if, if, if we have privacy, the bad guys are going to be able to talk. No, they'll find a coffee shop somewhere that's out of the way. You know, they'll always find a way to talk in privacy. Um, and it's always a, 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 a desperate balancing act on the knife edge between journalists and, and people like yourself where we want to keep private but then obviously security so these companies come in they try and figure out a good way for to basically drive a steamroller through the privacy of individuals right. on the basis that it might help put away bad guys now i've got one final question for you this comes from a listener who okay. says uh, if you update the whatsapp uh, app will you lose all your messages and how do you do it that's, that's a good question. If you update the WhatsApp app, you should not theoretically lose any messages or any call logs. However, um, it, that's entirely up to WhatsApp. When you update these things, there's always a potential that things could go wrong, but definitely update as soon as possible. The one key thing, if I can spread any message here, is update, update, update as soon as possible. Don't leave them for a week or two weeks because that's where the vulnerabilities happen and that's when your phone gets compromised and okay. you know you lose stuff. And if you haven't been sent, you know, here's an update. You just how do you, where do you get the update from? Go to the app store. Go to your uh, your device's app stores. You, every single device will have an app store. If it's got WhatsApp, it's got an app store. Right. Or if you're 100, for for example, journalists or sources, you don't really trust um, the the WhatsApp update. You can still access WhatsApp on the web. You just need to log in web.whatsapp or whatever it may be, mm. or even switch to another 
secure messaging platform. Okay. All right. We'll try that. Great stuff, Scott. Thank you very much indeed. Scott McGrady, cybersecurity expert. Uh, you shouldn't lose anything if you update your app. Uh, you also shouldn't have much to worry about, I don't think, unless you're some kind of um, human rights organization or dealing in some kind of, uh, you know, um, justice for somebody or other organization. I'm not quite sure whether it's something we should worry about or not, really, but we'll find out some more uh, as the week goes on. We're going to talk to Dave Williams now from Ilford Coombe. Dave, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Hello, Mike. And I should say hello to your dog, Holly, as well, shouldn't I? Yeah, she's uh, next to me, enjoying the sun currently. Now, the reason she's become uh, worthy of inclusion on the Independent Republican Mike Graham is because Holly, I understand, loves Countdown, and we've got a Countdown piece of music as well. But before we do anything with Holly, let's have a listen uh, to Holly's uh, performance when she normally listens and watches Countdown. This is great. I love it. Now, listen, Dave, you may know um, or you may not know that we have a similar countdown clock, but our countdown clock is nothing to do with countdown. It's to do with the countdown to Brexit not happening because we firmly believe that it's probably never happening. Um, and what we like to do is go to our countdown clock. What I'm hoping is we're going to go to our countdown clock and we're going to hear Holly howling. Do you think there's a good chance? Um, well, when you play that, she... Uh almost held so really? probably you might get alright well let's yeah. let's go with the uh, the independent republic Brexit countdown clock and see if we can get Holly to howl go on Holly it's not howling she's looking around why it's not howling I think like, she's like Parliament, very confused currently. Is she nervous? <laughs> yeah, I think she's just confused. <laughs> Shall we give it one more go? Come on, Holly. That's it. That's it. Brilliant. Well done, Holly. Fantastic. <laughs> Listen, I can make Holly, I can make Holly howl. Well done. <laughs> the other dog's getting Listen, thank you so much. Brilliant. How, how old is Holly? How long have you had Holly for? Um, fourteen. She's fourteen now. Wow. So Brilliant. Well, give her um, a big, uh, give her a big uh, bonio for me, and uh, and wish her well. And thank you so much for uh, for taking part in our little Brexit experiment. Best Brexit section of the show, I think that uh, Holly, the howling dog, and her owner Dave Williams from uh, Ilford Coombe. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show ten to one Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.